Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. This week, guest speaker, Pastor Kevin Canterbury, continues our new series, Sweet Emotion, out of the book of Matthew. For this third message titled Heart of Motivation, Part 1, turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. morning everybody so good to see you I get to be on this side of things this morning which is pretty awesome I want to thank the team for leading this morning they did a great job and uh, it's just always exciting to get to step into this role for a little bit I love teaching and so um, anyways this morning we're going to be talking about we're going to continue in this series in Matthew and we're looking at Matthew 22 33 through 40 so if you guys want to pull that up in your Bibles right now as we start So we're continuing in this series about emotions, right, in the book of Matthew. And so this morning we're looking at this section that's titled The Great Commandment. It's a familiar passage. It's probably something you guys have heard. I'm sure it's something you guys have heard. If you grew up going to Sunday school or maybe if you came out of a a different tradition, maybe you went through catechism or something like that, this is one of those things you're going to learn really early on, The Great Commandment. Um, I would guess that if I went out and kind of did a man-on-the-street interview somewhere, that most people are going to be familiar with the idea of the Great Commandment, um, especially the second part of it, which is the part about loving your neighbor. There's not a lot of controversy on that. No one's going to disagree on the notion that we should love our neighbor. Uh, I think most of what gets debated in the political sphere actually can kind of be distilled down into this idea of what is it, how, how do we relate to each other? How do we love each other? There's big different differences in how we think we should go about doing that or who our neighbor really is. But I think most people are very aware of that. Now, this is going to be a two-part thing. So today we're going to look at the first part of the commandment and what Jesus says is the greatest part of it, which is the part that people are less familiar with. And that's the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. So this morning we're going to be looking at that and what it means. That's probably something that if you ask people, they wouldn't know that part as well. Or perhaps they would, and I think a good postmodern thinker might say, well, we all have a different idea of, of who God is or what God is. And what I want to show you today is Uh, that the statement here is very exclusive to our God, right? Yahweh, the Lord that we serve. And so the other thing I want to go through is you cannot separate these two commands. You cannot do one without doing the other. That's why they're called the great commandment together. There's no one without the other. To love God is to love others, and to love others is to point them back to God. I want to frame this discussion through the lens of motives. As I wrestled through the application this week, I I kept coming back to this idea of motives. It's something that we're all very familiar with. We know about motives and we care deeply about them, whether you realize it or not, because motives shape our actions. Um, How many of you guys have ever heard the expression, it's the thought that counts, right? Guys, if you've ever bought a gift for your wife that was like clothes or an appliance 
Oh boy, you, you know what a bunch of garbage the statement is, right? So, but it's true though, in a sense, when we get a gift from somebody, it's, we do say, hey, it's the thought that counts. It's the motive behind the gift that counts, doesn't it? That's why when one of my children brings me a drawing and, and you can't, you have no idea what it is, uh, it's very meaningful because I know they spent the time and I know that the meaning behind it is there. They, they love me and that's why they did it. Or perhaps another example, um, and I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm going to use a lot of kids' examples. I really tried to think of other ones, but I have five kids, man. That's all I do is kid stuff, right? Maybe you've tried to mediate between disagreeing children. Has anybody had this experience? So in our house, when the children have a disagreement, we send them into the pantry to work it out. That's what we do. And basically, I think it, we came to that point because it's like, I am just tired of hearing about this. You guys just go in there and work it out and figure something out. I don't even care, right? Well, what we hope happens is that they're going to go in there and they're going to come to some kind of agreement or compromise with each other. Or if somebody has wronged the other person, that they're going to offer a sincere, heartfelt apology. And that almost never happens, does it? Right? Somebody comes out, did you apologize? Oh, I'm fine. I'm so sorry that you got offended by whatever I just did, right? Politicians are great at this, aren't they? Politicians offer the best half-hearted apologies that there are. And everybody knows it. Everybody can see it. Why? Because motive matters. And if it's not sincere, you can tell right away if it's insincere. So motives determine our actions. We all came here this morning for different reasons. All of us came here with different motives. I know that because I, I know why I come to church each week. And, and sometimes I wish I could say that I had pure motives in coming, but sometimes I don't. And so some of you came here this morning and you had a sincere, heartfelt desire to enter into God's word, right? And to become more holy in the process. And you wanted out of love for God to be here. Some of you came here this morning, and, and I'm not saying that it's an either-or kind of a thing. It's a mix of them. But some of you came here this morning because somebody else dragged you here. And others of you came here because you were excited about the friendships and the interactions that were going to happen. And you just can't wait to be around people. And others of you come in spite of that, right? You're like, I'm really not a people person, but I'm going to come anyways. We all have different motives. They lead us to the same place we're in this same room together. We all got up. We showered, unless you're a middle schooler and you didn't because they don't believe in showering. All right? You ate breakfast. You did whatever you had to do to get here this morning in this room. Right? And sometimes our motives vary on that. So with that framework in mind, let's read the great commandment thinking about motive. So again, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And this is what it says. Now, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they assembled together. And one of them, an expert in religious law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So the Pharisees have been trying to trap Jesus this whole time. This is coming into the last 
week of his ministry, and they are just looking for anything they can to trap Jesus. And what they want to do is put Jesus um, against Moses, because, of course, Moses is the most important figure to the Jews. And if they can do that, then perhaps he won't be so popular with the people. So they've done all these different things, and now they've got this teacher, this expert in religious law, coming to him. Now, a lot of translations render this as a lawyer. This guy is an expert, not so much on civil law, but on religious law. The Pharisees at this time had about 618 laws that they had come up with, right? Uh, 600 or 365 of them were thou shalt nots, and the rest of them were thou shalts. And they would do these, one, one for each day for the thou shalt nots. And so they had developed this whole system, and they actually had different traditions. They would have these debates and discussions about which laws were the greatest and most important. And they had different rabbinical traditions about that. So this is something that they talked a lot about. Um, it's, it's a question that people would have understood. It's something of the day. And so Jesus is going to take all this. He's going to identify and give him the answer. And he's going to kind of summarize it like in one tweet, right? 160 characters or less, um, which sounds impossible unless you're the son of God. And then he's going he's to do it here. So um, Jesus is going to give him a very orthodox answer, something that upholds his Jewish beliefs. And so he restates what's called the Shema. It's the most fundamental and important life statement. And it's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. I'm sure you guys have heard this too. It's the same thing. A little bit different, though, the wording. And it says this. Listen, Israel. That's where the word Shema comes from. It means here. The Lord our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. Jesus does something really important here because he connects these two commandments to love the Lord your God with the command to love your neighbor. He puts them away, or he puts them together in such a way that it's nonsensical to do one without doing the other. You can't separate them. And so Jesus' statement contains both a horizontal command and a vertical command. The vertical command is this. The first and greatest is the command to love God. It asks the question, what, is, what does God expect from me in relationship to himself? You see, whether you choose to accept it or not, something is required of you. You don't get to opt out of that. It's like taxes. Something's required of you. No person on earth is a free agent. We're all under an obligation to our creator. And even if you decide that you're not going to follow God's commandments, or as Pastor Ben often says, even if you stiff-arm God, you are still going to be accountable for your actions. You're going to face judgment for those decisions someday. You belong to God, and God expects something from you. Well, the second command is the horizontal command, which Jesus says is like the first. It's the command to love your neighbor. It answers the question, what does God expect of me in relation to others? How should I relate to others? What does God expect of me? You're not the only person on earth. You can't treat people as you see fit. Our very democracy 
is founded on this idea. We have rights given to us by the creator. We're endowed with these rights. And so you're obligated to treat your fellow man and woman in a way that does not violate those rights. It's the very foundation of who we are. Well, I found it interesting that the man who asked the question is a lawyer because a lawyer's job, as I'm sure you realize, is uh, especially uh, like a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney, what do they deal with? They deal with motives, right? They have to establish a motive. They have to prove that motive. And so recently there's been some really high-profile cases, right, involving the police shootings and things like that. And wherever you stand on that, here's what I'm going to tell you. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter because it's all going to come down to that, I, that um, idea of motive, And so each of the attorneys are going to try to establish the motive. And that's what's going to determine the case. That's how our court of law works, right? And so if they can can convince the jury that the motive was what they say it is, then they'll, they'll find him guilty. Otherwise, they won't. That's what it's going to come down to. So we're going to take a a closer look at the first part of this text. I want to break it down into its components. And so the first thing it says, there's this command to love the Lord your God. And what I noticed here, there's this element of a personal relationship and obligation in this statement. The Lord is a specific person. And the title Lord, I don't think you guys don't go around calling other people Lord, right? I've got landlord, but that doesn't count, right? Lord is reserved for somebody who is an authority over you. It's somebody who you owe allegiance to. Actually, if you trace the roots back, uh, interestingly enough, the word worship traces back in the English language to this word obeisance, which we've kind of lost, and it's kind of paying homage or allegiance to somebody, and it's this idea of lordship. We don't use that much, but that's what it means. This is the one that I owe allegiance to. This is the one that my that I give my allegiance to right here. So I love that because it's specific. It's not just anyone. It's not this God who's distant, but it's the Lord, our God, the Lord, your God. We use it when we pray because it's specific. It's relational. In Deuteronomy, its primary function, I mean, the Hebrew is called Yahweh, Lord, because it it differentiated him from the other Canaanite, the other gods of the Canaanites worship. This is our Lord, our God. So there's a specificity to it. It's Specific, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I think that we have to be careful right here because there's something going on here. Jesus is restating something in the Hebrew text, right? He's going back to that Shema like we talked about. And when we're trying to figure out what something means, tendency might be to go, well, let's look at some other Greek New Testament passages and we'll figure it out. But we have to be careful because we got to go back to the original language, which is in Hebrew. So what I want to do is walk through some passages with you and kind of give you a sense of what these words mean. And I think that the, what Jesus is trying to do here in this is not necessarily identify three specific domains Like, it would be really easy to just do a three-point sermon and what what that looks like. That's not the point here. What, What Jesus is saying, what God is saying, is that we are to love the Lord our God with our entire being, every single part of us. So there's a lot of overlap going on in these three categories. So I want to look at it because we can get a sense 
uh, from each one what exactly that means. But I want you to, to hear that with the understanding that the, the meaning here is we want to encapsulate everything. We don't want to just identify three specific areas, but the meaning is every single part of our being is to love the Lord our God. So with that in mind, let's look at what these three things mean and get a better understanding of what the Bible tells us. So the first one is the heart. The heart's described throughout Scripture as the seat of our emotions. It's the center of us. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it are the sources of life. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The human mind is more deceitful than anything else. It is incurably bad. Who can understand it? Well, in the ESV and the NASB, that word mind is rendered the heart. So that same root word uh, can actually be rendered both ways. There's a lot of overlap right there. The Hebrew language is not as precise as the Greek language or the English language, right? It's, it's an old language. So uh, with this overlap, we see that, again, this idea that it's encapsulating the entire being. Hey, quick side note here. If you are a big Disney fan, I think you guys should plaster that verse, seven, Jeremiah 17, 9, on top of the TV. Because how many Disney movies end with this idea of just follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. And here it says that the heart is deceitful, right? Not just deceitful, but it's more deceitful than anything else. In other words, emotions can lead you away, can't they? They can lead you astray if you don't rein them in. Well, here's another verse. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God does not view things the way that men do. People look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel goes to find a king to replace Saul. And he goes to Jesse's house, and he has all these handsome-looking brothers, right? David's this little skinny, scrawny guy that's watching the sheep. And that's what he's talking about right here. Ah, that's the guy you want. Don't look at all these guys, because God looks at the heart, and he's got a heart after God's own heart. And that's who you want. Well, what this reveals to us is that we may be able to hide our motives and our emotions and our heart and the center of who we are from people around us, but you cannot hide it from God. That's what he sees. He sees right through it. So in a real sense, the heart is the center. It's the seat of our emotions. We often talk about getting to the heart of a matter, right? Getting to the center of it. What's at the core of it? But we can be deceived by the heart. Emotions can lead us in the wrong directions if we don't keep them in check. Welcome to 2020, right? We've seen that. The next aspect is the soul. The soul's kind of a, it's a unique word. We don't find a lot of overlap with it. The soul's understood as the personality, especially in the Hebrew sense, or the, the conscience. It's used extensively throughout the Psalms, and it's used in this introspective manner. Um, the psalmist has these conversations with his soul, takes reflection of his soul. Psalm 103.1 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, with all that is within me, praise his holy name. It's that entire being, right? Psalm 42 and 43, the psalmist asks the question, Why are you depressed, O my soul? Why are you upset? We can see right there, there's that link with the emotions, right? 
So the psalmist is reflecting on the state of the soul and the emotions that he's feeling. Well, earlier in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So here the text indicates the eternal nature of the soul. I think this is how it's best understood for us. Usually when we talk about the soul, uh, we're talking about this eternal part, right? And so what we see here is that the command to love God is an eternal command. It extends beyond our mortality. We are to love the Lord our God with everything that we have for eternity. Which is why I think it's been said that if you don't love God now, you're probably not going to enjoy heaven, right? Because heaven is the realization of that great commandment to love the Lord with your whole heart. All the other distractions get put away, and it's you with God before you. And if you don't love him, you're not going to like that very much, right? Because that's what it's about. And then finally, there's this word mind, which is understood most accurately as the will. It's one's disposition. It's the source of determination. It's where we would say that our motives originate from. Again, we we saw the overlap there with the heart. Proverbs 19.21 says this, There are many plans in a person's mind, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. It's the root of our volitions. It's also the seed of wisdom, of knowledge, of intellect. 1 Kings 3.9, So give your servant a discerning mind so he can make judicial decisions for your people and distinguish right from wrong. This is when God asks Solomon. He says, or God, God says, I'll, I'll grant you one thing if you ask. Whatever you ask, I'll grant you. And so Solomon asks for wisdom. And because Solomon asked with the right motive and heart, he didn't ask for power or um, position or any of that stuff that all the other kings might have asked for. God says, I'm going to give you more than you asked for because you asked for the right thing. Romans 128, we'll look at some New Testament passages because I think Paul really does a good job of, of looking back and explaining now under that New Testament, under now the kingdom of God, what this means to us. And it says this, Romans 128, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what should not be done. The mind is subject to depravity. Just like, remember the heart can be deceitful above all other things. The mind, too, is, uh, is fallen and depraved. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what the will of God is, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. So right there, Paul's saying what we're doing as Christians under the power of the Holy Spirit is our mind is undergoing this transformation, this renewing process so we can be more Christ-like. This is an important point, and I say this whole idea about the mind being fallen and subject to depravity because there is a, a thought out there, there has been in historical Christianity that says that knowledge is the thing that brings us um, that, that saves us, right? 
And that's wrong. It's clearly wrong in Scripture. Everything is under that fall. And so we have to be careful about that. But right there, Paul says, we're undergoing this process, renewing the mind, and it has this relationship to the will. That's how we find out what God's will is. We undergo this transformation of the mind. So we're called not to conform to the world, but to be transformed. So, all these things together. Love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being. Hold nothing back. There shouldn't be any corners. No ulterior or alternative allegiances. No ulterior motives. It's God, your Lord, your God, plus nothing. That's what he's saying. Everything that you are belongs to God. So what's the result of a person who loves God wholeheartedly with all that they are? Well, the result is godly actions driven by godly motives. Our motives reflect God's own motives, his heart, the driving force behind God's actions. They flow out of that heart. You see, God is passionately committed to his name and to his glory. That's what's at the heart of it. God has a passion for his name and his glory. And as a result of his eternal love expressed through the Trinity, God is on a mission to make himself known to everyone. God's love is the driving force behind everything that's in the law. You take it all and you look at it and it all goes back to God's heart and his motive. This is why Jesus says in verse 40, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. They hang on them like a door hangs on its hinges, like you would hang something up, right? All the law and the prophets hang on this, these two commandments. And so I think it's imperative that we understand exactly what is meant here because this is where many people depart from what Jesus is saying. Again, going back to what I, I stated earlier, Postmodern thinkers will detach the second part of the commandment to love your neighbor, and they will make that an end in and of itself. Well, if I love my neighbor, then I fulfill the law. And that's not what it says here, does it? That's not what it says at all. It says those two commands are the law hangs on these two commands, right? They flow out of that heart of God. And so Jesus says that the horizontal command to love your neighbor as yourself is inextricably linked and dependent on that first command to love the Lord your God with everything that you are. You can't cherry pick it. You can't remove the two things. And so every action we carry out should be the result of an outpouring and an overflowing of our unwavering commitment and love for God, our Father, and for his kingdom and for his name. If you divorce those two things, You've divorced yourself from the law and from the prophets and from God's own heart. And I would say this, you cannot truly love your neighbor if you don't love God. You can't do it. Because true godly love points people back to God. True love is not just tolerating and accepting people. That's, that's what the world tells us. If we just get along if we just tolerate and accept people. But that's not love, right? Because that doesn't lead 
back to God. In truth, I would say that could be hateful in the end, right? Because if you withhold knowledge of God from somebody, if you don't point them back to God, how is that loving your neighbor? If you know where they're headed, if you really know where they're headed, the loving thing to do is to say, hey, stop what you're doing. Look, God, and lead them back to him. And I think this verse right here is going to drive it home. So this is 1 John 4, 7 through 10. It says this, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. The person who does not love does not know God because God is love. By this, the love of God is revealed in us that God has sent his one and only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the gospel, right? Leading people back to God, who is love, for the sake of his name, because he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You guys are sinners, right? In need of a savior? Boy, that doesn't go over big, that word right there. People like to remove all that. And it's not the gospel anymore without that. It's really important. We link that God is love. Anyone that doesn't know God, anyone that doesn't love, doesn't know God, right? And if you don't know God, I would say the opposite is true. How can you truly love? I think we need to be careful about who we align ourselves with. There are a lot of causes. There's a lot of movements out there, right? Oh, my goodness. There's so many of them. So many things that people are always trying to get you involved in and wrapped up in. And so what happens is we can, we can uh, um, get caught up in circumstances and it can stir our emotions and our heart. And then we find commonality with people that we agree with. We find commonality disagreeing with other people, right? We can agree that we disagree with these people. And so we get caught up in that stuff. And oftentimes, these very causes and movements are driven by motives that do not align with God's heart and his passion for his name and for his glory alone. And it's easy to see because God's love for people, God's own heart, his motive, always leads people back to himself. Always. It leads to the gospel right there, doesn't it? That's God's heart. To his redemptive work through Christ, atoning sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And so if a cause does not ultimately seek to lead people to God for the sake of his name alone, then it is at the very least a worthless cause. It really is, if not downright deceptive. And so we ought not to involve ourselves in those things. Because they're not ultimately going to answer the question and the need that is at the core of our being, are they? People are looking for God. We need to point them there. Well, maybe that steps on your toes a little bit. I don't know. Maybe, maybe uh, I would imagine some of you feel like I'm picking on your side. Isn't it interesting how everything these days uh, gets put into that political category, right? Everything. You don't even have to say it. So I feel like rather than dancing around all that stuff, we might as well just address it head on because that's where everybody's at, right? 
There's lots of idolatry going on. And my goal this morning is to call us back to the mission and the motive and the heart of God as expressed in the great commandment. So to properly put this in its context, every command in the law points us to God's heart and to his motive. Every command does that. You can read through there. You can read through uh, starting with the Ten Commandments, right? And you can see how the first half is love for God, that second half is love for neighbor, and they're all driven by that motive of God's heart of love for people to make his name known. Well, Romans 13, 8 through 10, uh, I think, puts this together really well. Once again, Paul here understanding well what Jesus was saying and what everything's pointing to. And he says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, and do not covet. And if there is any other command, commandment are summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And of course, Paul here is tying in what we saw in John, that God is love, right? He's not talking about a worldly love that has, uh, in and of itself, the end is really self-serving, but he's talking about a love that comes from God, who is the source. That kind of love. Church, when we devote our entire being to God, to loving God, when we find our joy and our satisfaction in Him, when we relentlessly pursue God's motives as our own motives, loving our neighbor becomes as easy as breathing. It literally just flows out of us. Now, I'm not there. I would guess most of you aren't there, right? That's a challenge to do, isn't it? But I think instead of thinking about tweaking these actions, why do I not love my neighbor? We need to get underneath and look at the motive that's driving us to do that. And I would guess that it's going to go back. I know it's going to go back to this love for God. Am I wholly devoted to God or am I holding something back? Because that's what's going to prevent us from uh, being able to carry out that second command to love our neighbor. So, I'm not there yet. You're not there yet. But I believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through that transforming and renewing of our mind that we're undergoing, right? I believe that we can get there a little bit every day. So we got to ask the Holy Spirit to help us with that, to give us a heart that loves God. Because you know what? Our hearts, remember what it said, the heart is deceptive above all other things. We're not born with a heart that wants God, right? It's not easy. It's not natural for us to do that. We have to undergo transformation to do that. And that's what the Holy Spirit's doing in us right now, even as we sit here this morning. And so through that, through prayer, because the, remember, God asks, God gives generously to those who ask, doesn't he? And through prayer, God will give us that heart that matches his own. And we can become holy, devoted disciples. So what does it mean for you today? Let's look at some things here. First one is this. God commands total allegiance to himself. Total allegiance. It's God plus nothing. He will not stop pursuing you until he has total allegiance, right? That's God's mission for his name. He wants every part of you. We talked about those three areas, but 
God wants your time. God wants your treasure. God wants all of those things. Number two is this. Love for God precedes love for others. You must understand what love for God is. And you must pursue that first if you're going to pursue the second thing. Right? It's futile to do that without knowing who God is and loving him and having a passion for his name. Number three, align yourself with causes that point people to God. We have a limited amount of time, don't we? I think we lose the urgency sometime about the fact that our eternal destinies are coming. And we forget about this. And so if you're caught up in other things that don't lead people to God, you're not fulfilling the mission of God. You're just not. Because the mission of God always points back to himself. So we ought to fill our time and align ourselves with causes that point people to God. And number four, practice the mission of Vail Christian Church. (laughs) Now this may seem like, oh, I'm just throwing it in there. But I really think that our mission statement ties in uh, well and really kind of summarizes the first commandment as expressed at Vail Christian Church. So, does anybody know what our mission statement is? Making room, yeah, making room in life to connect people with God and others, right? That's what it is. Here's the thing, making room in life. If you, I can tell you this, if if I took a poll, if I just looked at where you're spending your time and your money on, I could tell you what is important to you, right? We know that. I could look at your time and money and say, ah, that's, that's where your allegiance is. So in order for you to make room in life, you got to love God because we don't make room for things that we don't, we're not really motivated for, do we? If you're motivated to pursue your career, you're going to spend a lot of time on your career and doing things like that. And so what this says is you got to make room. you gotta, you got to actually do something. It's easy to be busy, isn't it? Oh my gosh, it's so easy. It's not that impressive when somebody says, you know, oh, I'm so busy. It's like, well, that just means that you can't prioritize well. That's what it says to me. I try not to use that word anymore. Honestly, seriously, I don't use that word because telling somebody that I'm busy doesn't mean anything. Everybody's busy, right? That's, uh, that's kind of the, the sin of the age in many ways is to be caught up in so many things. But what I try to think in my mind is, it's not a priority. And then I find that that changes everything. When someone says, can you do this? And, and if I'm willing to say it's not a priority, that really answers the question, doesn't it? Rather than just say I'm busy. So if you're making room in life, it reflects God being a priority in your life. And it leads to connecting people, right? It leads to connecting people back to God, which is the outpouring of that commandment, isn't it? To love your neighbor to lead them back to God, to the one they really need. And so this morning, I would just encourage you to think about that. Um, I I would take stock of your life, of your motives, of what you're spending, your time and your priorities. Have you given your entire being over to God? Have you allowed him every single area of your life or are you holding something back? Remember, God sees right to the heart, doesn't he? So that's what I challenge you with today. Be kingdom-minded people, people that love God first, and out of that love pours out love for our neighbors. Let's pray. Lord, it is a hard thing 
if we're honest, to love you with our whole heart and our whole being. And so, God, my prayer this morning is that you would empower people through the Holy Spirit, the helper that you've sent us, to be able to be entirely devoted to you so that we can carry out the mission that you've put us on, the mission to make your name known in our world. Our world needs it bad. Help us not to buy into the lie that tolerance or any of these other things is an end, but God, to know that only you are the one who can satisfy our souls. Help us to find our joy in you, to be completely fulfilled in who you are and our desire for your name, every single area of our life. And so, Lord, go with us now. Help us to live this out in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Join us again next week as we continue in the book of Matthew. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com.